Well, my name's John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor here at Alpine Logan. If we've never met before, I'd love to connect with you after the service. Feel free to come up and say hi and, and help me put a face with the name. I'd love to do that. Today, we're picking up the second week in our current sermon series called The Pursuit. Now, The Pursuit is a 12-lesson discipleship track that it's our hope that everyone who calls Alpine their church home would go through and eventually lead someone else through. Because we want to be on mission with Jesus. That's one of our core values here at Alpine Church. Now, last week we kicked off looking at the fact that God is for you. That God desires a relationship with you. Honestly, I think it's staggering that the God of the universe would give two cents about me. But He thinks I'm worth way more than that. And I know that because that's what His Word tells me. And I trust His Word. I trust His Word even more than I trust my feelings. And that's one of the reasons this lesson is so important today. Today we're going to look at reasons that you and I can trust the Bible. Specifically, three pieces of evidence on why we can trust the Bible. And it's so important to establish the trustworthiness of the Bible early on in this series because we're going to be referring to it throughout the series From this point forward, and really every Sunday that you come into Alpine, we're going to be appealing to the Word of God. And if you don't trust it, then every time we say something that God's Word says that you don't agree with, you're just going to dismiss it. You're not going to want to apply it. See, we're going to use the Bible as our compass here at Alpine Church. It is going to be our final authority on every issue I know that word authority isn't a word that our culture really likes, but all of us have something or someone we look to for the final say. Now, for most in our culture, self is the final authority. Whatever I think is best is right for me. But as believers, God's Word should be our ultimate authority. We should look to God's Word for every decision that we make. Every area of our life, we should have a biblical worldview. The positions that I take on abortion, divorce, managing my finances, premarital sex, how I treat my wife, even the transgender debate are all based on God's Word and what His Word says. If God's Word said bowling is a sport, I would confess that bowling is a sport. But it doesn't say that, so I stand by my position that it's not. (laughs) Don't be mad, bowlers. I'm just teasing. Spare me the emails. Oh, come on. That was funnier than that. Spare me the emails. The first core value we have at Alpine Church is that we look to God and His Word and all that we do. And we look to it because we can trust it. We look to it because it's a book like no other book. We look to it because as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, it is God-breathed. The original words that the original authors put down on paper were the exact words that God wanted to communicate with us. It is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. You know, God reveals Himself to us through creation God reveals Himself to us through His Spirit. God even reveals Himself to us through His people at times. 
But God has chosen to primarily reveal himself to us. His character, his attributes, his plan of redemption, his desire for the way that we should live our lives through his written word. And so I'm going to submit evidence to you today on why you should trust the Bible. There is a substantial amount of evidence, way more than I can cover in just one sermon. So if this is an issue that's important to you, if you're not sure if you can trust the Bible yet, I encourage you, keep digging. We have a ton of resources at PursueGod.org on the trustworthiness of the Bible. See, God never called us to check logic at the door when we pursue Him. You don't have to check your brain at the door to be a Christian. God's big enough for your questions. So keep checking God does call us to faith. I mean, Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. There is an element of faith, but it's not a blind faith. So do the research. Have the courage to ask the questions. So let's start with the first reason that you and I can trust the Bible. We're going to call it historical evidence. Ancient manuscripts and archaeological digs have stacked up in favor of biblical reliability. So this first area of evidence is what we're calling historical evidence. It's manuscript evidence, archaeological evidence. And any time that you and I are trying to assess the accuracy of any ancient work of literature, whether it's the Bible, whether it's the works of Aristotle or Homer, that's what we're going to look at today, we want to ask ourselves a couple of questions. How many manuscripts do we have access to that we can compare with one another And how reliable are they? What was the time gap between when the original document was written and the earliest manuscripts that we have access to? And so we're going to see how does the Bible stack up with some of these other ancient works of literature when it comes to these tests. So we're going to look at Aristotle, Homer, and then the New Testament specifically. We have 49 ancient manuscripts of the writings of Aristotle. Now, Aristotle lived from 384 to 322 B.C. So I think 49 manuscripts of something that was written 2,500 years ago is actually fairly impressive. (laughs) I find it interesting that no one ever questions if Aristotle's writings are accurate. You get accusations all the time that the Bible's not accurate. I don't see too many people complaining about, is Aristotle accurate? What about Homer? Anybody have to read the Iliad or the Odyssey as you're going through school? I actually love both those books. I thought they were fantastic. Well, we have 643 early manuscripts of Homer's works. Now, there's some debate among scholars as to when Homer lived, but most people would say it was sometime between 800 and 700 B.C., 643. How does the New Testament stack up? We have over 5,600 copies of the New Testament, and that's just in the Greek. Just in the Greek language alone, 5,600 early manuscripts. If we included the manuscripts from other languages, there's over 19,000. It's not even close. The access we have to early manuscripts for the Bible dwarfs any other work of ancient literature. So how reliable are they? That's the second question that we need to ask, right? Can we trust that the copies of the manuscripts that we have are accurate to what the original document said? Or is it kind of like the telephone game, that every time it was passed down a generation that it changed just a little bit? 
that the meaning got twisted. See, one of the ways that having more copies available helps you to determine reliability is it's easier to see when a change does come into effect. If you have over 5,600 manuscripts and 13 of them have something different than all the rest, it's pretty easy to go back and trace when that error was introduced. So how reliable is the Bible as it compares to some of these other ancient works? Well, the earliest manuscript we have of Aristotle's work is dated 1100 A.D. That's about 1400 years after the original was written. How does that stack up to the Old Testament, for example? Well, for the longest time, the oldest Old Testament text that we had access to was the Masoretic text, which was written in around 800 A.D. But then between 1940 and 1956, something really cool happened. That's when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, or at least the majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. We're actually still finding pieces. There were fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found just as recently as 2021. They're still excavating, still uncovering new scrolls. So then we compare that, which is dated 150 B.C., One of the amazing things about the Dead Sea Scrolls is there is a complete book of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So now what we're able to do is we can compare this complete book of Isaiah written 150 B.C. with the complete book of Isaiah written in 800 A.D., 950 years later, and guess what we found? They're almost identical. Over 95% identical. And within the small number of differences that we do see, most of them were spelling and punctuation errors. None of them significantly changed the context or the meaning of the passage. What a great testament to the faithfulness of the scribes who made those copies, and even more importantly, to the faithfulness of our God who preserved His written word for us. The manuscript evidence for the accuracy and reliability of the Bible far surpasses any other ancient work of literature. Archaeological evidence is another piece of what we're calling historical evidence. Countless digs, even those conducted by secularists, have confirmed the reliability of the historical events listed in Scripture. The next area that I want to talk about is what we call textual evidence. The Bible contains 66 books written by 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years, and yet it tells one unified story. So the Bible not only has 66 different books, it has different types of books. It has narrative books. It has books that are prophetic. It has books that are poetry. It has books that are actually letters. And they were written by 40 different authors in different languages, and yet they tell one unified, beautiful story, a story of redemption, the story of Jesus. So I'm going to highlight just a few of those biblical authors, and you're going to see just how diverse this group of men was that God used to put down His written word. First, we have Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch. So he wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you know the story of Moses, he was born a Hebrew. And he was born during a time in Egypt when the, uh, the Egyptians had put Israel into slavery and Pharaoh had determined that all of the male-born Israelites would be put to death. Moses' parents hid him and then, if you know the story, they put him in the river. He was found by Pharaoh's household and they adopted him as one of their own. Next we see David. David. 
David was a shepherd who would later become king. He's described in the Bible as being a man after God's own heart. He wrote about 75 of the Psalms. And we see Luke. Luke was a first century doctor. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. John is the only one of the 12 disciples in our list of authors that we're focusing on that we have. He was a fisherman until Jesus called him to be a fisher of men. And then last we have Paul, the former Pharisee who described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews and who at one point was actually persecuting Christians. He was going from town to town, rounding them up and putting them in jail and even having some of them killed until he had an encounter with the risen Jesus. And then God would use him to write a huge chunk of the New Testament. So here we have a a sampling of the authors, and we see just in this small sampling how diverse they were. Men from different backgrounds, men who spoke different languages, and yet God used all of them to tell one unified story. So I want to talk about some different examples of textual evidence that deal with fulfilled prophecy. And the first thing that I want to talk about is the birth, or excuse me, the lineage of Jesus. We're going to go to Genesis 49, verse 10. It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So we're backing up all the way back to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and we see this reference to Jesus. Jesus is the one that all nations will honor. Jesus is the one whose rule will never end. Now, this isn't actually the first prophecy about Jesus in the Bible. We have to go back even further to Genesis chapter 3, where God is talking to the serpent after he had deceived Adam and Eve, and he tells them that there's going to be hostility between your offspring and hers, and he's going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. That's a reference to Jesus all the way back in the very first book of the Bible in the third chapter. The whole story is about Jesus. Now, a couple of things I want you to consider about this passage from Genesis chapter 49. When it talks about a ruler will be born from Judah, Judah was not the firstborn son of Jacob. He was fourth in line. And if you know anything about their culture, there's no reason that Jacob would declare that a ruler whose reign would never end would come from Judah unless God told him to. There's nothing special about Judah. In fact, he had made some pretty big mistakes by this point in his life. And so as Moses is writing this down, there is no reason in the world that Moses would have thought the Messiah would come from the line of Judah unless God told him that that's what was going to happen. So we look ahead now to the New Testament, and we see the following in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham, and then the line continues. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, and it would go on and on until it leads the lineage all the way to Joseph and then Jesus See, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he knows how important it is to trace Jesus' lineage all the way back to Judah. Let's take another look at prophecy on the birthplace of Jesus. This comes from Micah chapter 5. 
Micah writes, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. I love the specificity of the Bible. This isn't some vague, nebulous prediction. It gets all the way down to the specific village where the Messiah would be born. And there's nothing special about Bethlehem. There's no reason it would be picked out. It'd be like if I told you the next president was going to come from Amalga. You'd be like, what? (laughs) Nothing against Amalga if you live in Amalga. (laughs) So there's nothing that would cause Micah to predict the Messiah would be born there other than the fact that God told him that. So let's fast forward now to the fulfillment of that prophecy in Luke chapter 2. It says, at that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the entire Roman Empire. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. See, it's even crazier to realize the prophecy was fulfilled when you understand that Joseph and Mary didn't live in Bethlehem. The only reason they were in Bethlehem is because the Roman emperor had declared a census to be taken. And I wonder if Joseph, as he was traveling to Bethlehem, knew that he was going to fulfill biblical prophecy. I would say that he didn't. I would say that he didn't have a clue. He was probably like me. He's probably griping and complaining the whole way, dragging his nine-month pregnant wife on a 90-mile journey because of the government, Right? As I've been preparing for this message, this verse has given me so much comfort because it's a great reminder that God can use even corrupt politicians to accomplish His plans. Now, that's, that's not a political statement directed at any individual or any party. The reality is our government, both sides of the aisle, have been making decisions for many years that are against God's plan, or not plan, God's word. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not making a political statement with that. But I'm just so thankful that God is never caught off guard by the decisions that our leaders make. God is always using them. God is always manipulating them to accomplish His purposes. Last piece of evidence I want to talk about relates to the death of Jesus and that prophecy. We're going to go to Psalm chapter 22. The author of this psalm says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? My enemies surround me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among themselves and they throw dice for my clothing. Again, look at how specific this is. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments and throw dice for my clothing. If you know anything at all about the crucifixion of Jesus, that's exactly what happened. Down to the finest detail of them casting lots for his clothes. And in case you're tempted to say, oh, well, that happened to a lot of people. Crucifixion wasn't even a primary means of execution when the Psalms were written. It came around hundreds of years later. The Romans are the ones who perfected it. This wasn't even really a thing when the psalmist wrote Psalm 22. We see another Old Testament prophecy related to Jesus' death in Isaiah 53. It says, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. He was buried like a criminal and he was put in a rich man's grave. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. Crucifixion was a criminal's death. So he was buried like a criminal, just as the prophecy stated. 
Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and buried in his own tomb. So he was buried in a rich man's grave, again, just like the prophecy stated. See, this is why I love textual evidence more than any other evidence, probably. The historical evidence does show us that the Bible is accurate. It shows us that the Bible is reliable, but it could still be just another book. But when you look at the textual evidence, when you look at the prophecies that have been fulfilled, you see something supernatural. You see that it's not just a book. You see it's the very words of God that were put on page for us. Do you know just how incredibly supernatural it is that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies about him in the Old Testament? Let me help you get your mind around that just a little bit. A number of years ago, two guys named Peter Stoner and Robert Newman wrote a book called Science Speaks. And the book is based on the science of probability. They're statistics guys. And this book was affirmed by the American Scientific Affiliation. And they went and they set out the odds of any one man fulfilling the 60 prophecies about Jesus that we see in the Old Testament. You know what the odds are of that happening? One in 10 to the 17th power. That's one in 100 quadrillion. I can't even get my mind around a number that big. It makes my head hurt just thinking about it. See, God didn't want to leave any doubt that he's behind this book. God didn't want to leave any doubt that he's behind the prophecies inside it. And he didn't want to leave any doubt that he's behind fulfilling each and every one of those. Jesus came right out and said pretty much that much in John 5, 39. He was talking to the religious leaders. He said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Jesus said, it's all about me from the start to the end. It points to me. He tried to tell the religious leaders that the truth was right in front of them. The truth was right in the scriptures that they studied every single day. That they were supposed to be teaching to the people of Israel, but because of the hardness of their heart, they missed it. I want to look at one last type of evidence, and that's what we're going to call personal evidence. The Bible is ultimately about Jesus, and the changed lives of his followers is the most compelling proof of its message. As Jesus just said in John 5.39, the Bible is ultimately about him. And we can trust what the Bible says about Jesus, including his resurrection. One of the most important things that it says about Jesus is that the grave couldn't hold him. And so I want to look at, at evidence of the changed lives of three people we see in the New Testament who had an encounter with the risen Jesus. We're going to look at Peter, we're going to look at Thomas, we're going to look at Paul. So let's start with Peter. Okay, Pre-risen Jesus, this is Peter. The night that Jesus was betrayed, Luke 22, 56 and 57, a servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers, but Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. This wasn't the high priest calling Peter out. It wasn't a Roman centurion. It was a servant girl, and he crumbled. Jesus had warned him that he would, but as Peter was prone to do, his pride blinded him. He made a big boast, oh no, Jesus, I'll die with you. And in front of a servant girl, he denied that he even knew him. 
But then Peter has an encounter with the risen Jesus. And we see Peter go on to do amazing things. John 21, 15, this is where Jesus restores Peter. It says, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Peter would go on to preach one of the boldest messages ever in front of thousands of people at the day of Pentecost. He would stand before religious leaders and government leaders. He would be beaten. He would be flogged. When they told him to quit speaking the name of Jesus, he said, I have to obey God rather than men. What could possibly change Peter to do that? To go from a man who wouldn't even have courage in front of a servant girl to being martyred for his faith. I would submit it's something supernatural. That he had an encounter with the risen Jesus. Let's take a look at Thomas. So if you know the story, Jesus appeared to the disciples in the inner room. They'd had the door locked, but Thomas wasn't there. So then Thomas comes along later and they say, Thomas, we've seen the Lord, and he doesn't believe it. Here's how it goes. They told him, we have seen the Lord, but Thomas replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. That's another reason I love the Bible and I know that I can trust it is it's so honest. If you were making this stuff up, you would not admit that your 12 most influential leaders of the early church had lost their faith. We'll see in a minute that Jesus called Thomas faithless. He didn't say, ye of little faith. He said, you're faithless, Thomas. You've lost it. I love that the Bible is honest about that. I'm sure that Thomas felt duped. I think Thomas felt betrayed by Jesus. He felt like Jesus had lied to him. He thought Jesus was the Messiah, and then he died, and he just doesn't get it. He didn't put the pieces together. He's like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not buying it. I don't believe it. And the only way I'm going to believe it is if I get to stick my finger in the wounds in his hands and put my hand in the wounds on his side. Thomas didn't want evidence. Thomas wanted proof. And Jesus, in his grace, gave it to him. We see it a little bit later in the story. Verses 27 and 28. So Jesus has come back again into the inner room with the disciples. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. In other words, Thomas, you've lost it. I know you've lost it. I know you have no faith. You are faithless right now. Don't be faithless. Believe. My Lord and my God. Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. There's a powerful lesson here. When you need assurance, look to the wounds of Jesus. When you need assurance that He loves you, no matter how dark, no matter how difficult whatever you're going through is, look to the wounds in His hands. He loves you. When you need assurance that you're forgiven in spite of the fact that you keep messing up, Look at the wound in his side. Remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. There's something interesting in the next verse as well. If we were to continue on, if you're following on in your Bible, he tells Thomas, Thomas, you believe because you have seen, but blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe. He's talking about us. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, there is a special blessing for us who have believed even though we didn't get to see the risen Jesus face to face. 
See, Thomas demanded proof, and in his graciousness, Jesus gave him that. He didn't have to do that. He could have just told Thomas, hey, these other guys, they saw with their own eyes, that should be good enough for you. But in his grace, he allowed Thomas the proof he was looking for. Let's look at Paul's life lastly. This is Paul writing in the book of Philippians. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience of the Jewish law. If you know Paul's story, again, he was out persecuting Christians, and then he had an encounter with the risen Jesus. And after that, Paul would say, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. See, Paul was made a new creation. Just like the Bible says, you and I are a new creation. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul would continue in the next verse by calling his self-righteousness and the things he used to think were important, he called them rubbish. And the original Greek word that they translate rubbish meant either dung or scraps of food that were only fit for dogs. That's what Paul thought of his own righteousness after he had an encounter with the risen Jesus. Now, this is really just the tip of the iceberg for the evidence of the reliability of the Bible. Again, I can't cover it all in one sermon. So I encourage you, if if this struck a nerve, if you want more evidence, go dig for it. God is not afraid of your questions. If you want to get connected to a mentor to help walk you through that discovery process, we would love to help do that. But I will say this, if you've made up your mind ahead of time that the Bible can't be trusted, nothing's going to convince you. I could put mountains and mountains of evidence in front of you and you still wouldn't believe if your heart is hard about it. See, if you pull a Thomas and you say, I don't want evidence, I want proof. I'm not going to believe the Bible's trustworthy unless Jesus stands in front of me face to face and I get to see his wounds. You're going to be sadly disappointed. He is coming back, but he's not coming back for that. Jesus warns, of the, uh, warns us of this in John chapter 7. He says, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Jesus told the religious leaders, it's a heart issue. It's not a head issue. If you really want to do the will of God, if you really want to know God, you'll know that Jesus' words were not his own that he was sent from God, that his teachings are from God the Father. See, if you have no desire to know God or to do the will of God, mountains of evidence won't make a difference. But if you have the desire to know God, like we talked about last week, the Jeremiah verse, God promises, if you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. You'll know that these words are true. I want to leave you with a quote from H.L. Hastings. He was kind of an apologist back in the 1800s, and I'm going to paraphrase it just a little bit, but I go to this quote often when I hear people criticizing the Bible. He said, so the hammers of skeptics have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are all worn out, and the anvil still stands. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago, because kings and priests Princes and rulers, popes, sorry, emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They're all dead. 
the book still lives. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for preserving your word for us. I thank you that we can trust it. I thank you that you don't call us to check our logic at the door, that you don't call us to just stick our heads in the sand and believe. Lord God, you're willing to give us evidence for our faith. I'm so thankful for that. God, I recognize that today there are two types of people in this room. There are those of us who already trusted the Bible. We believe it's from you. And, and for those of us who are in that camp, God, I just pray that we would act like it. That we'd live like it. If we trust it, would we live like we trust it? Would we know that the boundaries you have in there are for our good and because you love us? For those that maybe aren't quite sure yet, God, I, I get it. I remember being at that place in my faith journey. God, I just pray that they'd have the courage to research. I pray that they'd ask questions. I pray that they'd have an open heart and an open mind while they're digging. That they'd really just want to know you, that they'd want to do your will, Lord God. Because I'm confident if they do that, they're going to see that there's valid evidence for the reliability of Scripture. This book is a book like no other. That it's alive and active that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, that you use it for our correction, you use it for rebuke when we need it, you use it for encouragement when we need it. It shows us how to live among other people. God, I just pray that we would really value your word. I, I, I really do pray that this core value, number one, we look to God and his word and all we do wouldn't just be something on a poster in our walls, but that we'd live it out day after day after day. And God, I, I confess, I fall so short of that. I don't, I don't do that every day. There are days that I stumble. There are days that, that I don't trust your word. And I ask you to forgive me for that. And I just pray that you continue to work in me. I'm so thankful that you're not done with me yet. Your word tells me that, that you're not finished. So would you continue to do your work in us, Lord God? And would we trust on the reliability of your word? And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.